Okay, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Bible on Sunday nights, and we're getting really close to halfway through the Bible, which I believe is Psalm 118. We're in Psalm 110 this evening, which is reported to be the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110. Let's pray. Father, I, we pray in, in the name of your Son, Jesus, Lord, for you to realign our hearts by the Holy Spirit this evening. Realign our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray. By your word, direct our paths, direct our mind towards you. Help us to lay aside just the distractions of uh, the distractions of the day, Lord God, to focus once again on you, your glory, your love. Open the eyes of our understanding towards you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So what's going on here is that we are getting the rare privilege of overhearing or listening in on a conversation which is taking place within the Godhead, within the Trinity. This is the Father speaking to the Son. The Lord, the translation in Hebrew there is Jehovah, said to my Lord, translated Adonai, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And uh, King David here, inspired by the Spirit, is prophetically writing down uh, a conversation that he hears just prior to the ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God. That's what's, um, well, that's what's going on here. And so I would like to, uh, to turn to the New Testament to a few places where this particular verse is quoted. Matthew 22. Matthew 22. Turn with me to Matthew 22. Jesus is in Jerusalem. They are Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees are doing whatever they can to try to trick him and entrap him, entrapment. In the the beginning of Matthew 22, is it lawful to pay... uh, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And then in verses 23 through 33, you have this goofy scenario posited by the Sadducees. You know, what if a guy's married to a woman and, and the woman uh, and, the, and the man dies? And according to the law of Moses, he's supposed to marry uh, that uh, man's brother. Well, if she marries that man's brother. What if he dies? And then another, another, another. Who's, who's she married with in heaven? 
So Jesus answers that one, says that people were astonished, verse 33, at his answer. Then, which is the greatest commandment um, of all? But then, while they were all, and, and so he's just stumping them every single time. He's silencing them. And so then he comes back and he asks them a question. In other words, you've been asking me these question, these questions. Let me ask you a question. It says in uh, uh, verse 41, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. Now, the son of David was a common title for the Messiah. When the Messiah came, he would be the son of David, meaning he was, came from the lineage of of David, the direct lineage of David. And then Jesus said back to them in verse 43, he says, how then does David in the spirit, so when David is writing Psalm 110, he's in the spirit, call him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so the point that Jesus is making is well, you say he's the son of David, meaning he comes from the lineage of David. But uh, in Psalm 110, guys, uh, the, Lord, the Messiah is called David's Lord, meaning his God, meaning he is not only of the lineage of David, he is God himself. Verse 45, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? In verse 46, it says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him any more. So Psalm 110 was used by Jesus to silence permanently the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Go to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> You know what happened in Acts chapter 2? The disciples waiting to be empowered from on high, obeying what the Lord had told them to do. And they, uh, on the day of the Pentecost, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, who only days before, it only took just a little servant girl asking him, Oh, hey, don't you know, don't you know this Jesus guy? And David, big burly fisherman, oh, never heard of him, began to curse after he was uh, repeatedly asked the question. And uh, so uh, here he goes from being that coward that he was in his own strength to being filled with a spirit. And he gives a wonderful uh, sermon here. And he says in verse four, 34, he's teaching them about Jesus. And he's what he's doing, he's reasoning with them that, look, you killed the Messiah. And he says to them, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he said himself, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So here we see, quoted again. Uh, and, the, and the point that David is, is uh, that rather Peter's making here is that, look, David never ascended to the right hand of God. Uh, this is speaking of the Messiah. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. 
Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And we spent a year in the book of Hebrews, just finished uh, the book of Hebrews on Sunday morning. And one of the common themes was that uh, the letter was written to a discouraged people. And what is the antidote for discouragement? It's to put Jesus front and center. And so that's what the writer of the Hebrews does. And he just puts Jesus front and center, just places Jesus front and center, front and center throughout the, this whole letter in order to lift up their countenance and encourage uh, them. And in verse 13, uh, he said, but to which of the angels? He's making the point that Jesus is so much greater than the angels. He's so much greater than uh, everyone. He's greater than the prophets, it says in the beginning of uh, Hebrews 1. He's greater uh, than the angels. To which of the angels, verse 13 says, did he ever say, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Again, uh, uh, Psalm 110, this oft-quoted verse uh, in the Bible, uh, in the New Testament, rather. So the word footstool is the Hebrew word hadom. It's uh, meanings to stamp on. It's kind of the word footstool. Uh, I think it's one of those words, uh, Hebrew words, very difficult to translate into English. It means to stamp on and, and, and forcibly stamp on. And the, the thought here is in the Old Testament, I don't know if you remember in Joshua chapter 10, where the, uh, you know, they, they, Joshua and the Israelite army crossed over the Jordan, defeated Jericho, Ai, and then they just shoot out into the heart of the land of Israel, and they are just like knocking over kings left and right. I don't know if you remember this, kind of an obscure story, but in Joshua 10, five of these kings hid in a cave, and they found out about it. Joshua said, put a rock over that cave uh, until I get there, and he gets there, and um, he tells the captains, the generals of the army of Israel, he says, okay, now you put your foot, you put your foot on the necks of these kings. And in the Old Testament in ancient times, this was symbolic, the foot on the neck of utter total victory uh, over the enemies, that the enemies had been vanquished, uh, if you will. And uh, this psalm, Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm. When Jesus came the first time, he, came, he was the suffering servant. When he comes the next time, he will put all his enemies will be his footstool. Uh, there will be utter, total victory. And that is what this uh, psalm uh, is about. In Isaiah chapter 11, actually... Uh, Turn with me to uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, probably 100 pages to the right. Now, while you're turning there, I will read verse 2 of Psalm 110, which says, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. The, uh, again, the sort of, uh, it says, the Lord shall send the rod of your strength. That word rod is another messianic term. You see there in Isaiah chapter 11, it says, there shall come forth a rod. 
signifying power, but in many of your Bibles it's capitalized because it's speaking of Jesus, from the stem of Jesse, or from the stump of Jesse. Everyone thought, you know, with the kings, remember the kings, the, the, the kings of Judah, of Israel, were cut off when they were exiled to Babylon. And so many people said, oh, the, the, the Bible is not true because the Messiah is supposed to come from the kings of Israel and, he's, and the kingdom is supposed to reign forever. So they said, oh, it's a stump. It's nothing more than a stump, this uh, kingly line. Well, Isaiah here is saying, well, there's a rod that's going to come forth from this stump. Anyone have a translation that says stump, by the way? Maybe the NIV? There you go. You have the NIV? Yeah. The stump of Jesse. And a branch shall grow out of its roots. That word branch, by the way, this is fascinating. It's the word Hebrew word, uh, Nazareth. And, the, and remember, Jesus, one of the prophecies, he will be a Nazarene. And that's coming from this, uh, this verse right here, that he's a branch, a Nazareth. It's, that's what Nazareth was. Nazareth was, made, uh, was uh, the tribe of Judah, actually, after, after the Babylon, settled up in northern Israel. And that's why they called it Nazareth, the people of the branch. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. This is all describing Jesus, brothers and sisters. The spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of eyes. Nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Now there are, you know from the book of Revelation. This is a, a picture of Jesus uh, striking from the rod of his mouth. Righteousness shall be of his loins, verse 5, and faithfulness of the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together. A little child shall le lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like uh, the ox. Nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole. The weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Ouch. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, nor the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is a picture of of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, which will be preceded, you can come back with me to Psalm 110, with the very things that are spoken of here in verses 1 and 2. The rod of strength will come out of, um, of Zion and the... Uh, it says he, Jesus will sit at God's right hand after the ascension until that time when he's going to send them out and make his enemies his footstool. Your people, now also verse 3 is a continuation of the millennial reign, which is going to happen immediately after the second coming of Jesus Christ. It says your people shall be volunteers. Now, 
that word volunteers, it sort of kind of makes me cringe. It's like, oh no, what a word. Why did, why did you choose that word? The, the, the meaning uh, of that word uh, in the Hebrew is, uh, is people who are sort of raring to go. There's sort of a resolution. It's like a, 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 a yeah, it's sort of deal. They, in other, and what it's saying is that at that time, the earth, um, uh, judgment having come upon the enemies of God, um, the earth will be filled with people who long to obey the Lord. Long to obey the Lord. Verse 3, it says, In the day of your power. And the beauties of of holiness, that word beauties means, in the Hebrew means ornaments, in, in the ornaments of holiness. In other words, the world will just be adorned with the beauties of holiness. Uh, the world, when it hears the world, world the word, <laughs> holiness cringes. But in fact, holiness is beautiful. And we will dwell in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. And you have the dew of your youth. So that is a description, again, of Jesus in his return. He'll have the dew of, of his youth. In other words, it's a contrast to Jesus on the cross. The Bible says that he was unrecognizable on the cross that he was beaten so bad, he was unrecognizable. Not so upon his second return. It says, you will have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever. Again, he's, he's, still, he's speaking to who? The Messiah. God is speaking to the Messiah here. He's saying, you are a priest forever according to the order of of Melchizedek. So go with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Some of you probably knew that's where we would be heading. Melchizedek is the priest of Salem who came out of nowhere and met Abraham as he was returning from victory in battle. He ministered unto Abraham bread and wine. And we don't think that is a coincidence because the Bible does speak of this Melchizedek. uh, As many commentators say, it was literally a pre-incarnate appearing of Jesus Christ himself. He ministers to Abraham bread and wine. It says that Abraham bowed down and tithed to Melchizedek, this priest. He's called the king of righteousness. Of course, that's who Jesus is, right? The king of righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says, speaking of Jesus, remember that's what the book of Hebrews is all about, front and center Jesus. And having been perfected, he became the offer of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, this, this guy who had uh, showed up, this man who had showed up and ministered unto Abraham, and, and Abraham uh, you know, offered to him tithes and offerings, uh, did not descend uh, from 
Aaron. In fact, Aaron uh, wasn't even born yet. Now, priests in the Old Testament were required to come from uh, the lineage of Aaron, Moses' brother Aaron. And so many Jews say, well, the Messiah, the Bible says, is going to be a king, he's going to be a prophet, and he's going to be a priest. Jesus came from the line of Judah. So how is it that he can be the Messiah? Well, we know that Jesus' priestliness predated Aaron for all eternity. He was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So come, go back with me to Psalm 110. It's this amazing messianic psalm where God is just revealing 750 years before Jesus' birth, he's just revealing uh, something about the Messiah, that yes, he will be a priest, but he will be a priest not from the line of Aaron. He will be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 5 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath, speaking again of the second coming of Christ. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. Uh, even a short cursory reading of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a pretty harrowing scene, is it not? Uh, uh, the book of Revelation. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Psalm 110, a wonderful psalm quoted by Jesus himself, again, reported to be the most oft-quoted passage in the New Testament. Feel free, by the way, to just do homework on your own and prove me wrong there. I love to be proved wrong. You guys don't take anything I say for granted. Go back and read the Word of God yourself. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Now, you know, if you have never fasted before, the Bible does speak of fasting as a, something that Christians should continue to do uh, for the purpose of seeking the Lord. Fasting. Just, you know, not eating for a season of time and really just seeking the Lord. And many times fasts are done before uh, a time of, as a preparation time for ministry. Other times fasting is done just because you know, you just, you have the great desire to, 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 to seek the Lord and to know Him and to. Uh, and to draw near to him or if there is someone who is unsaved or some crisis involved in someone you know or you're in a crisis, you fast and you seek the Lord. Lord, what is the meaning of this? And one of the things that I recommend for a day of prayer and fasting is that you order your prayer during the day. By the way, you don't fa when you fast, you pray. If you're not praying, it's not fasting. It's dieting. Okay? <laughs> praying and fasting go together. So you don't call it fast fasting if, if you're not praying. Uh, fasting is all about praying. But I, I, I 
what I do for myself, I order my prayer and, and I big, have a segment or uh, from time to time when I fast, when I have a, a segment of prayer dedicated to just praising God for who he is. And then I have another segment about prayer for others and I have prayer for myself, prayer for the church. And if you want help on that first segment of prayer, praising the Lord just for who He is. We praise You, Lord, for who You are. That is one of the songs we sing. Go to this psalm. And if you have a pen or a pencil or a highlighter, here's, I want you to highlight these, these words because throughout this psalm, there is repeatedly, I think more than any other place in the entire Bible, there's re- repeatedly uh, descriptions of the character and nature of God. Uh, actually, names of God. God is known not by Bob, Sue, or Sally. He's named. His name is who he who he is. And so these are names of God throughout this psalm. So underline this. Verse three. God is honorable. Verse uh, three. Also, he's glorious. Verse three. Also, he uh, is righteous. Verse four. He is gracious. Uh, verse 5, he is compassionate. Verse uh, 5 also, he has given food. In other words, he is a provider. Jehovah Jireh, provider. Uh, he ver- Later on in verse 5, he is mindful of his covenant, meaning he is faithful. Uh, verse 6, uh, he has declared to his people the power. So he's a powerful God. Uh, verse 7, the works of his hand are verity and justice. So he is truth. He is justice. Verse 8, underline the word truth and uprightness. He is truth. He is upright. Verse 9, he is the redeemer. He has sent redemption. Uh, later on in verse 9, it says he is holy and he is awesome. So beginning your time of prayer. doesn't you know, have, Of course, does not necessarily have to... Be fasting, but just praising God for who He is. You want help? Go to this psalm. Lord, you are honorable. There's nothing honorable in this entire world other than you, God, and I praise you for that. Uh, You are glorious. You are glorious, God. You are righteous. And just going right down. This, as I've said many times, nothing is better as um, to help you in your prayer life than Scripture. Scripture is a springboard for prayer. Just going verse by verse and using the verses to sort of uh, spring off uh, into prayer. So uh, Psalm 111 is like... By the way, this is an acrostic psalm. So each verse begins with a, uh, a an alphabet, a character from the Hebrew alphabet. Yeah, a character. So, what does it start with? Aleph, and then it goes. Uh, it goes from from there. Praise the Lord! I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. So, have you ever been praising the Lord? Maybe you were praising the Lord tonight, and all of a sudden you realize that you're not thinking about God. You're thinking about a conversation you had two and a half weeks ago at lunch with someone. And you've been thinking about that for three minutes. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, I'm not supposed to be thinking about that. I'm supposed to be praising the Lord. 
with my whole heart. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Then it says, I'll praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. And so that is why we have time here on Sunday nights, once a month or every other month, uh, to praise the Lord. It was great being here last Sunday night, just listening to people. Uh, praise the Lord for what He has done uh, in their lives. Verse 2, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. Now, this word, the Hebrew word there for studies, studied is used uh, three or four other times in the Old Testament. Every other time it's translated, in fact it's translated in the King James this way, but every other time it's translated, it's translated sought out. Sought out, and I like that. The works of the Lord are great. They're sought out by all who have pleasure in them. And the picture there is of someone just who's just... They got it right. Their, their, their attitude and their heart towards the Word of God is right. They're just digging into the Word of God to find treasure there. They're seeking out the works of the Lord. Uh, this is describing someone who really's got it right. They're seeking out the works of the Lord. Verse 3, his works are honorable, glorious, his righteousness endures forever. He has, he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. And that is such a key point that we remember the wonderful works of God. Both the wonderful works of God that are listed out for us, itemized for us, chronicled for us in the Old Testament but also in our own life. If you don't keep a journal of the wonderful works of God in your life, I know that there are wonderful works of God that the Lord has done in your life. You be, should be keeping that journal and you should be remembering them. Don't forget the wonderful works of God in your life. Verse 5, he has given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his uh, covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works. So sometimes uh, the Lord declares himself through the written word of God. Jesus declared audibly but, uh, the word of God. But other times he declares uh, who he is just by the power of his works. He has given them the heritage of of the nations, the heritage of the nations. Let's skip down to verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, we'll quote it also in, in the Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is what's missing in the church of the United States of America today. Many pastors refuse to talk about the fear of the Lord. And yet, it says here that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the, of wisdom. Now, again, I've said this many times. This is not talking about being scared of the Lord the way an abused child is scared of an abusive father. The fear of the Lord is something that is incredibly healthy and it is tied very closely to 
the love of the Lord. And I've given this example before. I had a boss. I used to have a boss who uh, he... I, I never saw him lose his temper, ever. I never saw him get angry. He, he was never angry at me, not because, not, not because I was perfect, just because he just the guy didn't get angry. He was very gentle. He was always polite. He's very much of a gentleman. Uh, and yet, if I decided I would just come in late a couple weeks in a, in a row, he could fire me. So for that reason, I had a healthy fear of him and his position and his office. And we need to have a healthy fear of the Lord. What did he do? We read this morning in Mark chapter 11. What did he do when, when the church, I'll call it the church, it was the temple, but the religious establishment had allowed the, the, the world to sort of just the, the, be a, have a thoroughfare right through into the temple. Jesus says, it says that in addition to knocking over the tables, the money-changing tables, and, and shooing away the, the sheep and the doves, he stopped people and prevented them from carrying wares through the temple area. What had happened is that people were using the, uh, the temple as a, a shortcut to go from one side of Jerusalem to the other side of Jerusalem, and they were just bringing the world in to the temple. And, and the church does the same thing. It just allows the, uh, the world to just to, 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 to come in. And, and, and it's condoned. Worldliness condoned in Christian lives and in the church. What does Jesus do? He comes in. And he overturns the tables. And he, he will come and do the same thing in, in, in churches. He will come and do uh, the same thing in our lives. Our lives, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we should have a fear of the Lord. Because He'll do that. He'll come in and He will knock things upside down in our life to get us back in line. He loves us that much. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. Psalm 112. Bless the Lord. Bless is the man who fears the Lord who delights greatly in his commandments. By the way, that word blessed means happy. So happy is the man, the woman, who has a healthy fear of the Lord. They're not going around, oh, no, Lord, you know, glum all day and all stern looking. No, they're happy. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. His ascendance will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Now, I love this psalm. This psalm uh, has a lot to speak about what happens to, uh, to a born-again Christian when they come into the kingdom of God. Actually, everyone who comes into the kingdom of God, who is born into the kingdom of God. Remember, the Bible says we're born twice, once from our mother's womb, and then... But, we're born spiritually dead, so then we need to be born again. And we're all born into the kingdom of God with a whole bunch of phobias, fears. There's something like 183 recognizable diagnosed phobias. You guys are familiar with some of them. Claustrophobia, you know, fear of being in a tight space or whatever. There's acrophobia, fear of heights. There's Aquaphobia, fear of water. Then there's some like stranger ones. 
Aerophobia, fear of air swallowing. Anyone have that one? Phalacrophobia, fear of becoming bald. But then there's another one, pelidophobia, fear of bald people. So you can have a phobia of becoming bald, and then you can have a phobia of bald people. And then there's omphalophobia, fear of, or a phobia of belly buttons. What? It's true. I'm, I, hey, and I'm not mocking these because these are real. Before I was a Christian, I had carcinophobia, and it was so real, fear of cancer, where literally for a one or two week period, I was convinced that I was going to die. And it would rob me of my joy. I would just be walking around uh, like a deadbeat. It was completely neurotic. I was a neurotic dude. I really was uh, before I was uh, saved. And it wasn't until after I was saved that the Lord Release me from all of it. It's one of the... Jesus says, He who the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse uh, 14 and 15, it says, Jesus came to destroy uh, the, the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So there are so many who live with that fear of death that would certainly describe my life. But there are many other phobias. Well, this is a, 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 a wonderful psalm because it, it, it speaks specifically to a number of different examples how the Lord will release his children from these types of phobias. And one of them, you know, there's a phobia. There's a fear that many parents have. Just they fear for their kids' future, their spirituality. And, you know, is Junior going to turn out to be a rotten egg? Is Susie going to go off the deep end? Well, this says in verse 2, his descendants, speaking of the righteous one, someone made righteous uh, in Christ before uh, Jesus lived. It was those who looked forward to Christ or the promises of God. But it says, his descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Speaking of the descendants of a righteous person or the family, the children of someone who really loves uh, the Lord. Uh, Acts chapter 6 says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You and your household. This is a reality that once a person is saved they will begin to see people in their own family saved. And so we need not fear for um, what's going to happen to our children. The Bible uh, does have promises that uh, the Lord cares about those people. There's another fear that many of you are familiar with, that just the fear of financial ruin. But verse 3 says, Of the righteous, wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. And then verse 5, it says, a good man deals graciously and lends. And so um, people are stingy because they have a fear that, oh no, what if I run out of money? But as you are saved and you learn just the faithfulness of God and the love of God, that he's not going to leave you destitute, that fear of becoming destitute uh, goes away 
and you're able to, and it says wealth and riches will be in your house. Of, of course, that's not talking of that everyone's going to become a millionaire, but it's, it's, it's speaking of just the financial security. Unto the upright there arises light and darkness. And, and man, this is, this is real, a, a big time one that people will come into our church and, and many of you are in this place where before you were saved, you just lived in darkness, just spiritual darkness. It may involve real like demon stuff. Yeah, you know, going down to Haiti, we've become you know familiar with this type of stuff, and just spiritual darkness, and there just becomes a, a, a fear, really, of the demonic realm. This says, "The upright there arises light unto the upright there arises light and darkness." All that goes away. All that goes away. In Colossians, it says that Jesus. Uh, he he disabled the the Satan on the on the cross. He disabled the demonic realm from having any power over a child of God. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. Speaking of the righteous man, verse six: Surely he will never be shaken. Again, dealing with uh, fears being let go, but just a fear of the future. People are paranoid about the future. The wonderful thing about coming to the Lord is that you're seeking and following the Lord over time. There's the fear that you, there's just a, there's just a certainty that you're not going to be shaken. It doesn't mean you're not going to have troubles. It doesn't mean that sometimes the sky will start falling down in your life. But you know that though Jesus doesn't save you from the trouble, he'll be with you in the trouble. The righteous will be an everlasting remembrance. Verse 7, he will not be afraid of evil tidings, his heart is steadfast, trusting the Lord. If you have an issue with anxiety, chronic anxiety, the Lord wants to bring you uh, to a different place. He really does. Verse 8, his heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn, meaning his strength, will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. This is one of the attributes of the wicked. They'll see the righteous thrive. And it says in verse 10, they'll gnash their teeth and melt away the desire of the wicked shall perish. Psalm 113, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, we, uh, we studied actually a couple times, Psalm 103 and Psalm 104, which speak of blessing, blessing the Lord. What does it mean to bless the Lord? I thought the Lord does the blessing of me. I didn't know that I needed to bless the Lord. We talked about what that meant. Blessing the Lord. We bless the Lord's heart when we trust the Lord. We bless the Lord's heart when our meditations are sweet to him, our thought life are, su- are sweet to him. And we went down the list. So what does it mean to bless the name of the Lord? And we sing that song, blessed be the name of the Lord. What does it mean to bless the name of the Lord? You know, we sing these songs. We should know what these songs mean. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It, I believe what it, it, it really means, it's just speaking of Jesus said, remember in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. It means, it means hallowing the name of the Lord, honoring the name of the Lord. 
lifting it up as precious, blessing the name um, of the Lord. It also means, I believe, what we just talked about in Psalm 112. It means just recognizing the names of God for what they are. Uh, he is honor, he's glorious, he's righteous, he's gracious, he's compassionate, as we learned. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun to its going down, let the name of the Lord be praised. And so, uh, praise the Lord. When we were praising God this uh, this evening, uh, somewhere else in the world, the sun was uh, uh, rising and the name of the Lord was being praised there. So even as the sun's sitting here, we're praising the Lord. Somewhere else the sun is uh, rising and the name of the Lord be uh, is praised. And I do think this is also speaking of the need to praise the Lord in the morning, the devo- devotion time, begin your day with the Lord and end the day with the Lord. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. God so humbled himself, he became a man and dwelt among us. Verse 7, he raises the poor out of the dust. He lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. And this is really, I believe, speaking of the person who God gives birth to by his spirit. They become a children of God and he seats them in the heavenly places. In Ephesians, it talks that every believer in Christ, the moment in time where they come to know the Lord, it says that they're seated. We are seated. You are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. Verse 9, he grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children Praise the Lord. Let's stop. Let's just finish up here with Psalm 114. When Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, strange language meaning Egyptian. Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So it says Judah became his sanctuary. That is the place that God dwelled. You know, from the time it says in the Garden of Eden that God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. He dwelled with him there. It wasn't until they were in the wilderness that God decided to once again make the people of God his sanctuary. And now we... he. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, so God has made his sanctuary in each of our lives. Verse 3, the sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. So the Red Sea uh, was turned back, so was the Jordan. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skipped like rams. O little hills like lambs. Just speaking of the, the Red Sea and the Jordan. Moving aside, as God says in the Bible, Jesus says that he goes before, he's our shepherd, he goes before us into the pasture. He, and he went before the nation of Israel through the Red Sea. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water. The flint, which means a really, really hard rock, 
into a fountain of waters. And speaking there where they were in the wilderness, Moses struck the rock and water poured out. He struck it again. Wasn't supposed to uh, strike it a second time at the end of the wilderness journey, but he did. And the water gushed out again. And I have, in big capital letters, next to verse 8, I welcome you to write this one word down as well. I have the word Boston right next to verse 8. I welcome you to write it down there too. It says, who turned the rock into a pool of waters, the flint into a fountain of waters. You know, Boston is hard as flint, hard rock. And we're looking to the Lord to turn this rock into a pool of water. This flint into a fountain of water. So uh, we will finish up there.